our Lord is so awesome, so breathtaking, so overwhelming that just his appearance stuns Daniel and leaves him completely without strength. It's a breathtaking, awe-inspiring, stunning vision. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and today we continue with The Spiritual War Behind World History. The prophet Daniel testifies to the fact that God is sovereign over the affairs of people and nations throughout history. Nothing has escaped his plan. At no time has he been subservient to any king, ruler, or empire. In a unique way, Daniel chapter 10 gives insight into the spiritual war between angels and demons that transpires behind the scenes of world history. In the same way that God is sovereign over the history of the world, He is sovereign over the spiritual war that lies behind it. In today's message, Tom explains Daniel's vision, and he provides several practical lessons for us as Christians to apply. Let's join our teacher now on The Word Unleashed. The saints in heaven are described as wearing white robes to describe their their purity. God himself, back in chapter 7, verse 9, is described as being clothed in white to represent his holiness. So whoever this being is, Daniel wants us to understand that he is holy. Verse 5 goes on, whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of euphas. Likely, Daniel is referring to a linen belt. Typically, the, the belts that were worn around robes in the ancient world were anywhere from two to six inches in width. And this one is apparently embroidered with gold thread. And the gold was special gold. It was gold from Euphaz. We don't know exactly where that is. It may be another word for opfer, a word that's used in 1 Kings 9.28. And we don't know exactly where that is either, but most guess that it was somewhere in southwest Arabia. It was a place where there was special gold. That's the bottom line. So this was, this was like the best gold that could be had. One author points out that in the ancient Near East, this kind of belt worn with gold thread was worn only by the extremely wealthy and primarily by royalty. And so it may be intended to picture that this person is a king or a great judge. Verse 6 goes on to say, his body also was like beryl. The Hebrew word is chrysolite. It, it occurs a number of times in the Old Testament. It refers, we know this much, it refers to a gold-colored precious stone. One commentator writes this, the stone is said to be the golden topaz of modern times, a flashing stone described by Pliny as a transparent stone with a refulgence like that of gold. If you've ever seen a golden topaz, how it sparkles in the light. His body was like a golden topaz. His face had the appearance of lightning. 
His face was characterized by the blazing brilliance of a flash of lightning. We know what that looks like here in North Texas, how it lights up the night. His eyes were like flaming torches. His eyes were piercing like burning lamps, like burning torches. This pictures his wisdom, his intelligence, his penetrating insight. And his arms and his feet like the gleam of polished bronze. The parts of his arms and legs that weren't covered by his garment had the appearance of what we would call polished brass. And the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. When he spoke, his voice thundered. Leon Wood puts it this way, as this person began to speak, his voice carried the quality of a vast crowd speaking in unison, strong, deep, and authoritative. Who is this awesome, magnificent person? Well, there are only two possibilities. The first is that this is an angel. Most scholars, in fact, identify this person as an angel. That's possible, but the question comes up, if so, who is this angel? He clearly is, if not the greatest, one of the greatest of angels. And we already have met Gabriel in this book. This angel, or this person, and the, or I should say the angel who we'll speak later in this chapter, refers to Michael, so he's not Michael. So who is this? Some argue that it must be Gabriel, and we've already met him in chapter 8, verse 16, chapter 9, verse 21. That's not likely, however, because if it's Gabriel, then why in the world didn't Daniel just mention his name like he did before? And also, why would he describe Gabriel in such detail the third time we meet him? That doesn't make a lot of sense. In addition, when Daniel met Gabriel back in chapter 9, verse 21, he wasn't afraid. He was sort of getting used to this, right? But not so here. In this chapter, he is so overcome with fear that he apparently passes out three times. So an angel is possible. A second possibility is that this is God himself. This is a theophany, an Old Testament appearance of God, specifically a Christophany, that is an appearance of Christ, a pre-incarnate appearance of the, the Messiah. In his commentary on Daniel, Stephen Miller presents several arguments for this, and you can, you can understand this. Back in Ezekiel chapter 1, God is described in a way that's very similar to the description we read here. In Revelation 1, Christ is described in a way. In fact, as I work my way through it, you probably could hear those phrases coming to your mind from Revelation chapter 1. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 6, this person, the man in linen as he's described, has knowledge that seems to be greater than that of the other angels. And in chapter 12, verse 7, he actually takes a divine oath, the kind of oath that God would take. But there is an argument against this position that it's, it's a, the pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ, and that is 
the person that starts speaking in verse 10, beginning in verse 10 through verse 14, is clearly not God and is clearly not God's equal. Why is that? Well, verse 11 says he was sent to Daniel. He was dispatched. But more importantly, verse 13 says that this person in verses 10 to 14 required the help of Michael to fight against demonic forces. We're going to see that, Lord willing, next time. And so, he's not God. These are valid points, this argument against this being God. So, who is this person? Well, listen carefully, because this is where I think I land. Okay? I don't think we can be definitive, but basically… It's possible that the man dressed in linen in verses 5 through 9 and the interpreting angel that we meet beginning in verse 10 are two different people. If so, then Daniel sees the Son of God standing above the waters of the Tigris River in verses 5 through 9, and then God the Son sends his angel to minister to Daniel in verses 10 through 14. There are a lot of angels in this vision. There are four different holy angels that are clearly angels in this vision. You have verses 10 to 14, you have the interpreting angel. We'll meet him next time. That's clearly an angel. In chapter 10 later, we'll be introduced to Michael, one of the chief princes. There's a second angel. And then I showed you already chapter 12, verse 5, where there are two other angels, one standing on one bank of the river, one standing on the other, and they're talking to this person who's hovering over the river. But the man dressed in linen is in charge. In chapter 12, verses 6 and 7, I read it to you a moment ago, they're asking him, so when is this going to happen? The other angels are saying, tell us when this will come to pass. So if there are two different people in this chapter, the Son of God in verses 5 through 9 and an angel in verses 10 to 14, that shouldn't surprise us because it reflects exactly the same pattern that we see in the book of Revelation. At times, John encounters Christ himself like he does in chapter 1. At other times, he clearly interacts with an angel as he does, for example, in chapter 17, verses 1 to 6. So that happens in Revelation. He interacts with the Son of God. He interacts with an angel. We can't be absolutely certain, and I need to say that good men, great commentators disagree on this issue, but I am inclined to believe, and and I really think this is true, that the man dressed in linen in verses 5 through 9 is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ, and then beginning in verse 10, he sent his angel to assist Daniel. So let's look at it together. Verse 7, now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, while the men who were with me did not see the vision. The first few words of verse 7 are emphatic in Hebrew. Let me read it to you literally. I saw, I, Daniel, I alone. Can you imagine saying that any more strongly? Only Daniel saw this heavenly person. Those who were with him did not. 
Verse 7 says, Nevertheless, a great dread fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. Although the, his companions didn't see the person he saw, they apparently sensed a supernatural presence, maybe even heard the voice. And as a result of that, literally, again, the Hebrew text is very descriptive, a great trembling fell on them. It's like they were so afraid they had a massive earthquake in their own bodies, and they ran to hide. By the way, this was the exact experience the Apostle Paul had on the road to Damascus in Acts 9. In Acts 9-7, we read this, that while he was the only one who saw Jesus, the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. In Acts 22, verse 9, as as he recounts that experience, he says, those who were with me saw the light to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And then in Acts 26, verse 14, as he recounts again that experience, he says this, we had all fallen to the ground. And so, this is the kind of thing that happens here in verse 7, verse 8. So I was left alone and saw this great vision. Daniel found himself completely alone with this awesome being, very possibly a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ, and it immediately drained him of all strength. Verse 8 says, Yet no strength was left in me, for my natural color turned to a deadly pallor, The Hebrew essentially says he turned as pale as if he were death itself, and I retained no strength. But I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. Wow. As soon as he heard the Son of God speak, Daniel was overwhelmed. He went into shock, and he was left unconscious with his face on the ground, just like John in Revelation 1. What an amazing encounter. Now, next time, we're going to hear what Daniel heard. But I want you to think with me for just a moment about the lessons for us from these first nine verses of Daniel 10. First of all, understand this. God is far greater and far holier than we can imagine. I mean, think about it. If it's true that this was an appearance of the second member of the Trinity, if this was a pre-incarnate appearance of the eternal Son, then this response makes sense. But what if it was an angel? who simply represents our Lord. I mean, think about that. If, and look at Daniel's response. If, if a holy, righteous man who has walked with God for his whole life, for 70 years plus, he has walked with God, he's experienced divine revelation, he's experienced the miraculous, and yet He found himself unconscious and without strength before God or even his angel, then how awesome and how holy and how great God must be. I reread this week some of the 
the supposed encounters that modern people, particularly false teachers on television, say they have with God. You know, here's a guy shaving, carrying on a conversation with God. That is so unlike every biblical encounter people have with God. They find themselves on their face unconscious. How great God is. This, remember the context. God was there. We're going to see it. God was there to encourage and comfort the prophet. That's why he sent his angel as well. But our Lord is so awesome, so breathtaking, so overwhelming that just his appearance stuns Daniel and leaves him completely without strength. We sang together a few moments ago, Behold our God sitting on his throne. It's a breathtaking, awe-inspiring, stunning vision. This is the response of those who know and love him. This is Daniel. Can you even begin to imagine? Let this sink into your mind for a moment. Can you even begin to imagine what it will be like for God's enemies to stand before him on the day of judgment? Be eternally grateful that by his grace he has brought you to flee to him for salvation. Look at Psalm 2. I love this psalm that talks about our Lord, his coming reign. Notice verse 10. Psalm 2, verse 10, Now therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling, with fear, with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. You will either find the Lord Jesus Christ your refuge at the judgment, or you will experience his judgment. Those are the only two options. There's a second lesson for us, and that is our Lord is always with his people, especially in their most difficult times. That's what Daniel was experiencing. He was in mourning. He was mourning like one mourns for the dead. He was mourning like one mourns over their their sin, like one mourns in the midst of extreme calamity. He was mourning for three weeks, and the Lord shows up. This is what he has promised. Psalm 23, 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the darkest valleys in life, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, be content with what you have. Why? Because God himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. I don't know what you find yourself in tonight, but I can promise you this. If you know God through his son, Jesus Christ, he has not abandoned you. He is with you. He always is. Thirdly, the persecution of believers in this world is normal and to be expected. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In John 15, Jesus said, If they hated me, guess what? They're going to hate you. Don't be surprised as animosity grows toward believers in our world, even in our nation. I don't know if you saw this week the news story out of China 
about the evangelical pastor of a large church there who was arrested last year. His, his case finally came to trial, and just last week he received a sentence for doing nothing but being a Christian pastor of nine years in a Chinese prison. The Christian Post states that a Facebook post from a group affiliated with the church said that the embattled congregation praised God for the faithful witness of our brother in Christ whose reward is now great in heaven. May the Lord use our pastor's imprisonment to draw many to himself and to bring glory to his name, noted the post. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Folks, persecution is not unusual. It's normal for Christians. Dale Ralph Davis writes this, We who live under governments that, for all their godlessness, at least do not inflict overt persecution, can forget that we are in an abnormal situation. Our brothers and sisters who are daily savaged and ravaged for Christ's sake, whether in North Korea or Myanmar or Pakistan or Iraq or China or elsewhere, where they are hated and hunted, are wading through what is far more normal for Christ's servants, we need instant recall that both faith in Christ and suffering for Christ are equally gifts of grace, as Philippians 1.29 teaches us. Because to you, Philippians says, it has been graciously given on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Davis says, we are not told this to make us morose, but rather to make us prepared. Number four, one of the believer's most important tasks is the strategic work of prayer. Ferguson writes, In his commentary, the rebuilding of Jerusalem would involve heavy labor, action, busyness, controversy, time-consuming activity. God already raised up leaders in that area, Ezra and Nehemiah. What these leaders needed most was someone who would engage in the hidden strategic work of prayer for the defense and advance of the kingdom of God. It was apparently in this activity that Daniel was already engaged when he received a further heavenly visitation. He prayed for blessing he would never personally witness. What commitment his decision to remain in Babylon displayed, end quote. He committed himself to pray for God's people. Let me ask you a question, and I really want you to answer this question in your heart. It's a question I have to ask myself. Do you really believe what the psalmist writes, that when the righteous cries, the Lord hears. Do you believe that? And if you believe that, can you say that you are personally committed to the strategic work of prayer like Daniel was? May God make us men and women of prayer. Let's pray together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part two of his series, The Spiritual War Behind World History. Tom will have part three for you on our next program. Join us then, won't you? Well, Tom, before we end our time today, would you share a closing thought with us? You know, friend, can I just say that it is so important 
that when we as believers study passages like the one we're studying here in Daniel 10, that we remind ourselves of the goodness and the greatness of our God. He deserves our worship, whatever the circumstances of our lives, even the difficult ones, because the truth is God is sovereign over them all, and he will use them for his own purposes. At the same time, this wonderful chapter should motivate us to strengthen our prayer lives, because Daniel was committed to going to the Lord in prayer. We should have that same commitment. Our God hears the prayers of his people, and he will respond. His word promises that he will. We have to take God at his word and trust him to work according to his will in answer to our requests. Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. We also invite you to visit thewordunleashed.org, where you'll find other resources, including additional series from The Word Unleashed. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals just like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. 